part of the chapter, verses 1 through 19 of Genesis chapter 22. Where we read these words. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns, he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because... You have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to his name. Now, as you are aware, for a considerable number of Sunday mornings, we have been engaged 
in a series of studies in the book of Genesis and more particularly of late in the very instructive life and example of the ancient patriarch Abraham. We have been seeing that in the Bible, the life of Abraham is indeed a picture to us in a most vivid sense of the life of faith as he has come before us as a man of most extraordinary faith in God. And indeed, in many senses, in a classic sense, he is in Scripture the very epitome of how the life of faith is indeed to be lived. Now, all through these earlier chapters of the book of Genesis that have engaged our attention in Abraham's life, we have been seeing that God's intention in dealing with Abraham is that his faith might grow and mature. In other words, the message, in a sense, of these many studies that we've been engaged in has been a very simple one where God, as it were, has been coming to his servant through many and varied experiences and saying to him, Abraham, I want you to go on, to grow as a man of faith, to go on into the deeper things that I am showing to you and revealing to you through all these experiences. Now, we've seen that God has employed many means in which to do this. He has given Abraham great encouragement, for instance, when on the separation from his nephew Lot, God showed him the whole land before him and said, It's all yours, Abraham, as you continue to serve me. His faith was tested in a number of ways as he went down into Egypt and said that Sarah was his sister rather than his wife. But even in those times of disobedience and of a failing faith on Abraham's part, the Lord has been merciful and again and again has come to him and Sarah and taken him out of those difficult situations and restored him to his fellowship again. Now through all of this, the Lord has been encouraging and strengthening Abraham's faith, as we have seen. And the whole purpose of this, we must remember, is indeed that it is a pattern for us. We are the children of Abraham, as we've been reminded constantly. And he is the example to us of how we should believe and the progress that we should be making in our Christian lives and experiences today. Well, we've now arrived at a chapter then in Genesis 22 where Abraham and Sarah are going to find that their faith is tested in a unique way. Indeed, in many senses, this 22nd chapter of Genesis is the very highest point, the apex of the life and experience of Abraham so far. And in all the rest of his life, for he lives another 175 years, there are no more experiences that even come near to this experience of Genesis 22 when God comes to him and tests his faith and says to him, I want you to give up your son, your only son, as a burnt offering and a sacrifice to me. Now you remember that in the previous chapter, Abraham and Sarah had laughed the laugh of faith. But in Genesis 
22. They are going to discover, as we discover likewise in our Christian lives and experience, beloved, that faith, true biblical faith, is not all laughter. And Abram's faith is about to be displayed in the fullest possible way in circumstances that are full of mystery and darkness and the deepest kind of testing, I think, that a man has ever gone through, save that perhaps, well, certainly, rather than perhaps, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at this passage in an introductory way this morning, it does lead us to the question, and I want you to bear this mind, this in mind as we go through this chapter this morning. How far are you and I ready to go in trusting our God? How far are we willing to go in obedience to Him? Where are the limits to our willingness to follow and to obey. Because you see God's purpose with all of us in our lives this very morning is to find out the answer to that question. If you look, for instance, at verse 18, the words, because you have obeyed me, or earlier in verse 16, because you have obeyed me and not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless you, the Lord says. And that's precisely, you see, the question that lies before us this morning. Is there some area in my life that I am deliberately withholding from the Lord? So I direct your attention to the three elements that we should focus on in this introductory study of this chapter this morning in Abraham's experience. Now, first of all, you must notice with me, there is Abraham's trial, and we refer particularly to verses 1 and 2. Now, I direct your attention to just two things this morning about Abraham's trial, and they're things I think of greatest possible importance. The first thing from verses 1 and 2 is simply this, concerning the trial that Abraham went through. It's a very obvious truth, but it's one we may very easily overlook because it is so obvious. But Abraham's trial, beloved, came from God. Just like the joy in the previous chapter came from God. Manifestly so. Now it's very important, you see, for us to grasp this simple but profound biblical truth. But the trial in Abraham's case came from God. Verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, do this and so forth. Now why I stress and emphasize this is for the simple reason that God's testing, you see, of Abraham is part of his purpose and plan to produce in Abraham an even higher quality of obedience and consecration of himself to God than he had shown so far. And that is the secret of Abraham's 
standing in the sight of God and his usefulness in the kingdom of God that he should go on to that deeper level of consecration and obedience to the Lord. And certainly what is about to happen is profoundly mysterious. But the vital thing that was to uphold Abraham in this dark hour and these dark areas was that it was God's hand that he was under, do you see? It wasn't a trial or test that had arisen because of his own fallen nature as it was in some previous instances of his going into Egypt or in his telling the lie that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. But God had called him to do this extraordinary and difficult and sacrificial thing. And Abraham had answered God's call as God had begun to test him in this extreme way. And that we must grasp, beloved, is the secret to understanding Abraham's willing obedience. And evidently, I suggest to you, in the three days that transpired, as we learn in this chapter, from the time that God spoke to him in verse 1 through the, to the time when he raised the knife over the prostrate body of his own dear son Isaac, Abraham had been meditating on this extraordinary command. And he'd been enabled to see that it was God who was calling him to this trial. And God was therefore, you see, calling Abraham to trust him without reservation and without any qualification. And it was because of all Abraham's experience of this same God beforehand and his utter trustworthiness that he was able to go on without flinching to Mount Moriah and trust him yet again. So you see, what I'm saying to you this morning is this, that the prospect of this trial and the outcome of it was absolutely different because God was in it and God had initiated it. And there is a sense in which Abraham is going on into the deep and mysterious purpose of God, recognizing that the very hand of God has led him and directed him there. And that's why I think if you look at verse 5, are the extraordinary words of command to the servants of Abraham as Abraham and Isaac now have arrived near Mount Moriah, the place of sacrifice. And Abraham turns and says to the servants who've accompanied him there, stay there with the donkey while I and the boy go over yonder. We will worship and then we will come back to you. We will come back to you. And it's the picture you see of Abraham's faith undoubtedly as a man who knew God and was able to trust him in the darkest hour as he said, we will come back in the full knowledge that God had said, in effect, only one of you will come back. 
Now the nature of the trial certainly, and this is the second thing about the trial, it certainly was mysterious and profound. We know that in the ancient civilization of Abraham's time, the practice of child sacrifice was not at all unknown, but it was a pagan practice. And we know from the Lord's instruction later to Moses and the people of Israel in the wilderness in Leviticus 18 and in Deuteronomy chapter 12 that God forbade any form of human sacrifice in his service. And indeed he declared it was utterly abhorrent to him. And this constituted the real trial, you must understand, for Abraham. How could it be that the God of gracious love that Abraham had come to know should desire a human sacrifice from his servant, something that Abraham knew instinctively was utterly, utterly obnoxious to God, yet he required it of his servant. And moreover, he required it in the light of the fact that Abraham's whole life had been lived out in anticipation of this son of promise upon whom the whole future of God's plan of redemption depended upon his son Isaac. And God says to Abraham, now I want to take him away from you. And it seems to fly in face of everything that God had ever said to his servant. Now you can begin to understand something of the profound mystery of this trial and how Abraham's reason and wisdom must have been offended by this command. Yet Abraham heard God and obeyed him. Abraham, here I am. Do this. And early the next morning, we see Abraham doing it. Now, in summary, under Abraham's trial, let me say this. What we know, of course, is that God did have a purpose through that trial of Abraham's faith. And that what he wanted, and mark this well, we'll return to it, is not Isaac's death, but Abraham's life. That's what God really wanted, you see. But Abraham at this point didn't really understand it and acted in faith without knowing the reason for God's command and not realizing that the loving Heavenly Father wanted in Abraham's life that deeper consecration and self-sacrifice to him which Abraham had not yet reached at this point. Abraham's trial, how great it was, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. We will go and worship, and we will return. But how God would fulfill his purpose was totally incomprehensible to believing Abraham. Now let me say to you this morning, you may have been in particularly and painful trials of late, but the secret, beloved brother and sister that will enable you to bear that trial, whether it's 
a bodily one in your health or your prospects of your health in the future, whether it's in your job, whether it's in your family. The thing that will sustain you is the same thing that sustained Abraham in his trial. Are you in the hand of God? Because he wants your life, a life of uncompromised obedience to him. He wants you to come to the position where you will say to him when he calls upon you to go through a trial, here I am. And I am utterly and absolutely at your disposal. And as I said in my prayer this morning, reflecting upon this passage, if we have a congregation, beloved, of people like that, then nothing is impossible. And we can look for a transformed church and a transformed community and a transformed city when God's people are willing in the day of God's power, as Abraham was, here in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham's trial. Now secondly, do you notice, in verses 3 through 10, there is Abraham's obedience. The issue, as we've seen a moment ago, is how far Abraham was ready to go in trusting God. Not, I remind you, how far he was ready to go in understanding God. That was a different thing altogether. But how far he was able to go in trusting God. And it's evident from verses 3 through 10 that trust and obedience are the twin keys that open up God's purposes in our lives. And as God led Abraham on, you see, there's a sense in which, as I said to you a moment ago, it is not Isaac who is on the altar in the end. Do you grasp that? It's not Isaac, in a sense, who is on the altar, but Abraham who is on the altar. And you see it in verses 12 and 16. You have kept nothing back from me, God says in effect. You have not withheld your son, your only son, Isaac. You, my beloved friend, have done that in obedience and in faith before me. Now what it says to us, you see, is this, that if you and I can hear those words spoken to us, in our lives today, when we stand before God or when we worship him here in this service, these words are worth more than all the gold, bullion and reserves in the federal banks. Is it indeed the hallmark of our life that God can say to us this morning, you have kept nothing back from me. Life is so brief and circumstances are so changeable and uncertainty surrounds every one of us and our experiences. But the one essential thing is that this should be the characteristic of our lives day by day. The kind of obedience where God comes to us and says, you have kept not even the dearest possession that you have 
from me. Now I want you to notice also concerning Abraham's obedience that there was an immediacy about it in verse 3. Early the next morning, we read Abraham got up and cut the wood and so forth. And it was only the previous day that God had spoken the awful command, take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him as a burnt offering in the place that I will show you. Now, certainly there's something beneficial, as you know, in early rising. There's a German proverb that says the morning has gold in its mouth, and indeed it has, and you've proved that, I'm sure, on many occasions, when in the early hours of the morning you've had a quiet time of devotion with the Lord and found it refreshing for the rest of the day. But you see, the point here in verse 3 is concerning the immediacy of Abraham's obedience. He didn't wait. He didn't dither. He didn't procrastinate. He didn't dally. There was no evidence in Abraham's life, you see, of a kind of grudging obedience to this awful command of God. No attempt to delay it. No attitude of wait and see. Maybe God will change his mind. But he rose up early in the morning. And what is also striking is that Abraham goes and cuts the wood himself in verses 3 and 4. He doesn't delegate the task to a servant, as we might expect, but with his own hands he goes and cuts the wood that will be the instrument in the sacrifice of his own son. There is a straightforwardness, you see, about Abraham's obedience. He's about to give the most precious thing he has upon the altar. And he describes it in verse 5 as an act of worship. We will go and worship, he says to the servants. Now, of course, when you think of this, there's a straight line of application between verse 5 of Genesis 22 and Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul, you recall, says, I beseech you, beloved, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto him. And really what Paul is talking about is true worship and the nature of true worship. That's, you see, where true worship begins and continues. That by the mercies of God, we present our bodies a living sacrifice as our reasonable worship. In other words, it is the presentation of everything that we are and have to God and even the most costly things that we are or possess. Now is our obedience of that quality, I wonder, this morning? We need to ask that question, you know, because the alternative that is open to us was also open to Abraham. There was an alternative, you know, and that was to behave as he had behaved on several instances before, as we discovered. In other words, not to trust in God, but to trust in himself and the flesh and take the easier route. 
and feel again the pull of the old nature, saying to him, Abraham, don't do it that way, because that's costly. Do it this way, because it's much easier. And the temptation was there to disobey God. Think of him having to go to his wife, Sarah. Did he tell her? Dared he tell her what he was about to do? Scripture draws a veil over the answer to that question. And as he looked at this son that he'd grown to love, a mere stripling still, a teenager, being asked to offer him his dearest possession to God, but he was in no doubt what he must do. It's better to trust God he had learned with all the cost that this entails than to trust the flesh and to disobey. And he'd had plenty of experience of the latter and the disaster that it had brought into his life. Now, some of us may be facing that kind of situation, you know. And the question that I ply again to you is this. Is the characteristic of your obedience to God the same characteristic that it was in the case of Abraham? You see, if we are to come honestly before God, that is the issue that we should be facing day by day and Lord's day by Lord's day. Because it's God's purpose, as we've seen, to raise us up in godliness and to grow in grace. And I've got to tell you, my friends, this morning, that the great danger in the evangelical and reformed church lies right here. You may come to these services, Lord's Day morning and evening, and admire the Word of God. Oh, how we admire it. The 66 books. How wonderful they are. How rich they are. How fulsome in doctrine and promise and exhortation and command. And all the time, we are not doing it. We are admiring it, but we are not obeying it. And you see, it's perfectly possible to live a life, and indeed live much of your Christian life, admiring God's counsel and enjoying the preaching of it, but living in daily disobedience to him. Because... You have set limits on your willingness to obey. Now, I cannot apply what the Holy Spirit is certainly saying to your conscience, as he is saying to my conscience this morning, concerning the areas of that disobedience. But, oh, my friend, I exhort you as your pastor this morning, listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Do not despise him in the day of his speaking to you and deal with those areas that he brings into your conscience where you know in your inmost being he desires a greater conformity to the word and command of your gracious heavenly father than you are yielding at this present time. Those areas where you have set deliberate limits to your willingness to obey him. Abraham had none. Now the third and final thing, and quickly as we close, is this. 
there is not only Abraham's trial and Abraham's obedience, but Abraham's reward in verses 11 through 19. I swear by myself, says the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And the promise flows on for several verses, as you see, as God says to him yet again, I will multiply your offspring, and in you all the nations of the earth will indeed be blessed. Now, blessing Abraham did receive in a most manifold way, and it's summed up by Abraham calling the place, of course, in verse 14, the name Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And we know that this is a slogan that has been taken by different Christian organizations. For instance, the China Inland Mission, now known as the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, took verse 14 as the slogan or the text or motto for their great work, that God will provide both missionaries and finances. And their founder, Hudson Taylor, dwelt much upon God's faithfulness in terms of this verse. But of course, it's a verse that was not spoken originally in connection with finance or necessarily missionary work, but it was spoken, do you notice, to a man who was called to high and unreserved consecration of everything that he had to God. And God came and said to him, the Lord will provide, in effect. And Abraham recognized that God was saying that to him. And he called the place by that name, Jehovah Jireh. Now you see, it's a wonderful truth at that level for us, that God will and does provide for his people. And I want to say to you as I finish this evening, that the on this morning, that the only life worth living is the life that trusts him absolutely. Because you see, if you, like Abraham, have been under trial, and if you, like him, have been enabled by God's grace to render that full and 100% loving obedience and response to the Lord, there is blessing designed for you. The way is painful, but the recompense is glorious, beloved. And you have come to realize in a new way that the only life really worth living is the life of costly obedience to God, the life that trusts him absolutely, that issues in blessings that are innumerable. And we have entered. For instance, we need to remember into those very blessings of which God spoke to his servant Abraham because the way in which God would bless Abraham would not be for himself alone but for all his believing seed down to the very Gentiles who have become believers in Christ today. For generations to come, the fruit of Abraham's faith and obedience was like a canopy of blessing over believers not yet born. Down, down, down through the years, God's people still have reason to bless Abraham for being 
the man that God had made him to be. So in conclusion this, what about your life and mine this morning? I may have said nothing new to you in the exposition of this passage, nothing that you didn't already realize before, but that's not the point. We are not here in these services to find our imagination tickled by some new and fanciful interpretation of a biblical passage so that we can be intrigued by what the preacher says, by catching some new interpretation. But we are here to be brought face to face with the same issue that Abraham originally was confronted with. Where are the bounds of my obedience to God? Have you set limits in your life to that? Or can you truly have it said of you, you have held nothing back? I tell you, when you consider what God can and will do with your life, the rest that you are giving up is like rubbish in comparison compared to the riches of the glory of the blessings that God has for you in Christ Jesus. Truly, beloved, there is not only an altar in Genesis 22, there is an altar in your life, and God is calling you to it, that you might consecrate yourself more utterly and completely to him this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we find that this great passage not only encourages us much in our understanding of the life of faith, but deeply challenges us that we might walk in the steps of our Father in the faith. Abraham, enable us, O Lord, to say yes responsively to what thy Holy Spirit has spoken to us in this service and begin more fully and earnestly to live that daily and loving life of biblical obedience to the Lord in those areas in which he has convicted us this morning, and all for thy glory's sake, through Christ our Lord. Amen.